0: This morning we are in chapter five of the book of Joshua and as always we're going to have the Bible passages for you on the screen but I think it's a great idea to have your own Bible open in front of you so that you can follow along and so I invite you to turn to Joshua chapter five and if you need a Bible you can find one under the seat in the row ahead of you. This morning it's obvious as we look at the news that we live in a very divided world. We live in a world full of people taking sides. And our Bible passage in Joshua 5 deals directly with that issue. So the message this morning is titled, Whose Side Are You On? We're going to get into that in just a minute, but before we do, I'd like to take a minute and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We continue to pray for all that's going on in our world, and we particularly pray for the continuing war in Ukraine. And we pray earnestly for protection for the innocent. We pray for courage and resolve for those who are defending their homes and their families. And we pray for courage on the part of the Russian people because we know that so many of them do not support the actions of their leader. And Father, we don't know what the answer is, but we pray that you would cause the Russian people to rise up in such a way that Vladimir Putin will stop what he's doing. And Father, beyond that, we pray that as a witness to the world that Vladimir Putin would humble himself before you and that he would repent of his evil actions. Oh, Father, drive him to his knees before you, we pray. And Lord, as our political leaders deal with this, we pray for heavenly wisdom for them. May they realize that this is a situation which cries out for wisdom from on high. And we pray, Father, that our political leaders would do what is wise, not what is politically expedient. And Lord, here in our midst... We know that we continue to walk through challenging seasons of life individually. There are those in our church family who may be hurting or in need this morning. And through our friendships with each other, show us how we can best support and encourage anyone who is in a rough season of life. May we truly love one another as you have loved us. And carry each other along when life is hard. Now, Father, as we prepare to look into the Bible. We ask, as always, that you would be our teacher this morning. We pray that you would teach us through the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures and who, that same Spirit who lives within each of us. And I pray, Father, that we would be able to receive your truth this morning. And as we do, then, please give us the willingness and, if necessary, the courage to live out your truth each and every day. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever noticed how much of life is oriented around taking sides? We find an issue and we go up to somebody and we say, so which side are you on? And why do we do that? We do that because we like to identify our allies and our enemies. Now, there are times when taking sides is just good, clean, innocent fun. I I mean, it's impossible to have a competitive sporting event without two different teams. And it's really enjoyable for us to passionately root for our side. Sometimes, though, we take sides in unhealthy ways. Back when I worked in the business world there were times when the sales force and the purchasing agents and the engineers would lose sight of the big picture and they would become territorial about their own departments. And I remember sitting in meetings where these different groups took sides against each other and no one was talking about what was best for the company and our customers. It was about taking sides. And then think about what's happened in our culture and in the church. We ask, whose side are you on when it comes to masks and vaccine mandates? Whose side are you on when it comes to presidents and political parties? And not only do we pick our sides, sadly, then we so often vilify those on the other side. And sometimes, because we're so convinced that we're right, we even claim that God is on our side. I think we need to be really careful about that. Because I think that to claim God is on our side is to look at the issue exactly backwards. We need to be on God's side. We need to make every effort to discover what it is that our Creator wants to do in His world and what He wants to do in our lives. And then we align ourselves with His purposes. And this is a lesson that God wants the Israelites to learn. And the way that God goes about this is recorded for us in Joshua chapter 5. And I think given the state of our world, it's a lesson that we need to learn along with our spiritual ancestors. Now here in the book of Joshua, we've been following the journey of Joshua and the Hebrew people. And as we left them last week, they've arrived in the land God promised to give them. And it's obvious that God has been incredibly faithful to bring them to this point, so it's natural for them to think God is on our side. But that's the wrong attitude. So God is going to lead them through a process of three distinct steps to help them realize that they must choose to be on His side. And step one in this process is that they must honor their covenant with God. Let's take a look. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, listen to this, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Their enemies are incredibly afraid. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, this one really gets to me, make flint knives and circumcise the son of Israel a second time. Hmm, interesting use of a flint knife. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at gibeoth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they, that's okay, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Okay, so let's summarize what's going on here. There's these kings mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. They're the rulers of the various cities scattered throughout the land. There were kings over cities. And these Canaanites and Amorites have heard about Israel and Israel's God. And yet as Israel penetrates the land to claim their inheritance, very few of these people make overtures of peace. They're in fear of God but they have no desire to get on God's side. The Israelites, though, they now have a chance to say to God in an overt way, yes, we are on your side, Lord, and God gives them an opportunity to do that by reinstituting the ritual of circumcision, which is the sign of God's covenant. And the covenant is an agreement between God and the Jewish people. God has said, I'm going to be faithful to you, And the people in turn have said, We're going to be faithful to you, God. However, during their years in the wilderness, Israel did not practice circumcision because they were under judgment. That earlier generation had been unfaithful, which is why they had to wander for 40 years in the desert. And as we read, during that time, all the males of military age, which they defined as men age 20 and older, they all died. And now a new generation has grown up in the wilderness, and they pledge their faithfulness to God. And they do so by doing what He asks. They want to honor His covenant, and therefore they are willing to receive the covenant sign, which is circumcision. Now people often ask me, why did God choose this particular physical act as the sign of a spiritual covenant? And it's a very fair question. After all, circumcision is intensely personal. It's very painful. It's not publicly obvious. And only men have to submit to it. Why did God choose that unusual sign? Well, the answer is actually really powerful because it ties together human nature and a specific part of the covenant. God wanted the Israelites to reproduce and to become a great nation, a nation built around faithful families. In order to do that, though, the men had to harness their sexual impulses. The fact is, most men are not naturally monogamous and yet God wanted them to become committed to the essential roles of husband and father. God wanted to raise up a nation of men who would be faithful to their wives and then together these husbands and wives would raise up faithful children. And so yes, circumcision is intensely personal. And it is an intensely personal reminder to every Jewish man that sex does not exist for the purpose of self-indulgence. Under the covenant, sex has a holy purpose. And circumcision was a reminder to every unmarried man that God wanted the sexual union to be reserved for marriage. And it was a reminder to every married man that to be sexually faithful to his wife was to be faithful to God. The sexual union of a husband and wife was a very distinct way for the Jewish people to honor God's covenant. And circumcision was a tangible reminder of that pledge. And now a new generation has grown up and God is inviting this new generation of Hebrew men to take this covenant responsibility seriously. And they respond by saying, yes, Lord, we will submit to circumcision. And if you think about how circumcision normally happens in our culture, those people that do it, they do it to infants. Israel here was doing it to grown men. That's a very different thing. And I'm glad I live in an age in which something like that is done with scalpels. They did it with flint knives. (laughs) Hmm, interesting. And no anesthesia. And as I ponder that, it seems to me that was a somewhat courageous act for those men. But what it tells us is that they are willing to endure some significant pain to say to God, We're on your side. We're on your side that day, Lord. Now, the text makes it sound like Joshua personally did all the circumcising, he did not. He's the leader, so it comments on that because God's instructions come through Joshua as the leaders. It's done by Jewish priests who were trained in that role. And Bible scholars believe on that day that the priests circumcised some 500,000 men. That's pretty impressive because remember, the community itself is larger than a million people. And as all of these men honor God's covenant, here's the most important thing. God takes away the reproach of the past. God says, now the unfaithfulness of the prior generation is laid aside. The stain of the old sins is gone, and you, my children, you're all getting a fresh start with me. That is what God is saying as these people honor His covenant. And it's a very vivid reminder that a fresh start with God always begins by honoring God's covenant. That was true for our spiritual ancestors, and it's true for us today. And so how do we, on this side of the cross, honor God's covenant? Well, as followers of Jesus, we live under a new covenant, one that was instituted in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38. And on that historic day, the apostle Peter explained that a new covenant sign was being put into place. And he said to an assembled multitude, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to emulate the actions of our spiritual ancestors, we don't do it through circumcision. We respond to God in faith and we submit to baptism. And as we do, we honor God's new covenant. And as we do that by faith, God takes away the reproach of our past just as He did for the Israelites so long ago. And best of all, when we honor God's new covenant, He fills us with the Holy Spirit who gives us the strength to trust Jesus every day and to live by faith. A fresh start always begins by responding in faith to God. And we do that by honoring His covenant and entering into that covenant relationship. That's what He wants us to do. That's what He wanted Israel to do. And now that they've done so, He prods them to take step number two. So they honor God's faithfulness by celebrating their first Passover in their new home. Let's continue on. The Passover dates back to the time when the Israelites had been in slavery in Egypt. And God took them through a process to set them free, but the culmination was one incredible historic night. A night when death passed through the country of Egypt. And as death passed through Egypt, all the firstborn males of Egypt died. But as death passed through Egypt, death passed over the Israelites. And all of them were spared. And God said, I want you never to forget what happened on this night. And how I set you free from slavery with this incredible miracle. And God instituted this ceremony called Passover. Every time the Jewish people celebrate Passover... They remember who God is and what God has done for them. Passover is a tangible reminder that God takes care of His covenant people. In a similar way, you and I honor God's faithfulness every week as we participate in communion. Jesus instituted communion out of the Passover ceremony. It is the new covenant version of this old covenant memorial. And each week as we eat the bread and drink the juice, we remember who Jesus is and what He has done for us. And this is the way people of the new covenant celebrate the goodness of God. Each time we take communion, we remind ourselves that through Jesus we've been given a spiritual fresh start with God. And while our fresh start with God is really primarily spiritual, for the Jews, their fresh start is both spiritual and physical because they've left the desert behind and entered the promised land been referred to, they've heard it referred to for years as a land flowing with milk and honey. And it is a land of plenty. It's full of grass and flowers and trees and crops and grain. And unlike their previous life in the desert, the people now can live off the land, so God immediately stops providing them with manna. Manna was a God-manufactured product. It was this bread-like substance which God miraculously created during the time that Israel lived in the wilderness where food was scarce. And each day when the people woke up, their camp was surrounded by manna. It was an object in living by faith because they had to literally rely on God for their daily bread. You know, when we talked about Israel crossing the Jordan, we talked about how that wasn't an immediate miracle. It lasted for a while. It took a while to get people, a million people across the river. Now you talk about an extensive miracle. This was a miracle that lasted for 40 years. Wow. And it ended when the people arrived in the promised land because there was no further need for it. God's provision started and stopped exactly on time. Another phenomenal reminder that God cares for His covenant people when they are living out His covenant purposes. And and as all this is taking place, let's not forget the Israelites at this point are camped in enemy territory and as we just read, they're healing from circumcision which means they're not in fighting shape which means it's a great time for their enemies to come and get them yet they don't attack. And why not? Because as we read in verse 1, they're petrified. They're full of fear. They're scared to death of the God who walks with Israel. And so what that tells us is that God protected His children at a time when they were incredibly vulnerable. It's yet another example that God watches over His people when they are aligned with His purposes. And I think there's one other very relevant point to grasp in all that's taking place. Leaders change, but the Lord's purposes and promises and priorities do not change For years, the Israelites had viewed Moses as the only one who could speak with God and speak on behalf of God. Moses was the one who instituted the covenant, he was the one who instituted Passover. But now, Moses' authority very clearly has been passed on to Joshua. And therefore, the people do not need to be afraid that that somehow their connection with God is altered or weakened simply because they have a new spiritual leader. Leaders come and go but the community of God presses on because God doesn't change. And God always is working through His people. And I think about that in light of Thurston Christian Church. For more than 100 years, this church has been a light to our community. And if you study the history of our church, it's clear that we are a healthy and resilient community of faith. And over the years, we've had at times a very exciting growth. And we've also had times of frustrating decline. And yet the history of this church is profound. Because in seasons where it's hard, the people in this church at that time have always been able to regroup and regain their fire and to press on. And this church has always continued to be passionate about reaching out to the community and to the world in order to help build the kingdom of God. And in different seasons, the church has been led by different elders and different pastors. And here we are, we're going through that again. Yet as leaders change, God doesn't change. The mission of the church doesn't change. God always equips the community of faith to carry on when we choose to be on His side, fulfilling His purposes. And this applies to every one of us as individual believers. And yet it applies even more to leaders. And that's true for us, and it was true for the Israelites. And so, as the rest of chapter 5 unfolds, God now has a very special lesson for Joshua. And even though Joshua is God's hand-picked leader of the Israelites, he must learn that he is not the supreme authority. Joshua must honor God's leadership, and that is step three of ensuring that Israel is on God's side. Look what happens next, it's very, very interesting. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went out to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord... What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Those of you with some Bible knowledge may see some similarities with an incident where Moses met God at a burning bush. It sounds a lot like this moment. But we have to ask, who is this man who appears? Well, it's clearly not an angel because Joshua falls down in reverence. He worships and calls him Lord, and this man says you're standing on holy ground. The only logical conclusion is that this is a unique appearance of God himself in human form. God is doing something very significant and unusual here, and and why would he do that at this moment in this way? It's because this is a very critical moment in the life of Israel. And it is a particularly critical moment for Joshua's leadership. Joshua has overcome many obstacles to lead God's people to this place. But there's a huge test in his immediate future. The Israelites will need to conquer the fortified city of Jericho. And as we will see... God is going to do that in a wild, weird, and wonderful way. And the only way Joshua will be able to accomplish what God wants is if he trusts God completely because God's command will not make sense. And so God appears here and says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army, which I don't think is a reference to the army of Israel. I think it's a reference to the power of heaven the Lord is stating that the resources of heaven will fight on Israel's behalf because Israel will be asked to do things that no army logically would do. God's going to fight on their behalf in a powerful and supernatural way. But in order for that to happen, Joshua and the Israelites must choose to be on God's side. And that's why Joshua's question and the Lord's answer are so vitally important for him and I believe for us. When Joshua asks this man, are you for us or for, or for our your enemies, he's asking the question we so often ask. Hey, whose side are you on? And since this man, since this man actually is the Lord, here's what Joshua logically could expect the answer to be. He could very well expect God to say, hey Joshua, I personally picked you to be the successor of Moses and I've given you everything you need for success and look how I led you across the Jordan and brought you into the promised land. So charge ahead with confidence, Joshua, because obviously I am on your side. That's not what happens, is it? You see, in essence, the Lord says... Wrong question, Joshua. It's not a case of me being on your side. You need to be on my side because I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Are you going to follow me and honor my leadership? And Joshua responds with humble worship. Humble worship. And that's not how you and I typically respond when we think God's on our side. In my case, I have to say that if I become convinced that God's on my side, then I tend to act with pride rather than humility. And I can find myself making pronouncements about the way things ought to be. And why do you and I sometimes do things like that? I believe it's because we go through an internal pattern of reasoning that sounds something like this. I believe in God. I'm a faithful Christian. I'm a good person, and I want to do what's right. And I've looked at this issue, whatever the issue might be, and I've come to some really good conclusions, so therefore every good and godly and right-thinking person should agree with me. Now let's be honest, in a whole lot of cases that's really presumptuous, but here's what's a bit insidious, if I'm good, and I'm godly, and I'm right, then not only should you agree with me, but I tend to assume that God agrees with me, and I conclude God must be on my side. And oh, we need to be so very careful about adopting such an attitude. And yes, there are times when we know that we're in the right. Joshua knew that he was in the right. He was the right man in the right place doing exactly what God wanted. And yet even in that moment, the question never is, is God on my side? The question always must be, am I on God's side? That's what God wanted Joshua to learn in this pivotal moment. And I believe we need to hear that as well. And I think it's particularly important for us in this season of life in our society. Because so often the issues we face and the issues that divide us are not nearly so clear cut for us as they were for Joshua. Much of what we take sides over are matters of opinion and preference. And whether we're talking about politics or economics or the best way to respond to a pandemic, good and godly people can sincerely reach different conclusions. So I can't assume God's on my side. And neither can you. Instead, we need to make every effort to be on God's side. And here's one way I think we can do so. Rather than vilify each other, how about if we choose to be humble and gracious toward those who disagree with us on matters of opinion and preference? I think that's way more like following in the footsteps of Jesus. God wants us to honor His leadership. And it applies to all of us as individual believers, it applies to the elders of the church, and it applies to the next person who God will call to be the full-time pastor of this church. A while back I, I happened to run across a recruiting ad for a church that was looking for a new pastor. And among other things, their their job advertisement said this, we're looking for a man that God can get behind. And when I read that, I almost wept. I said, oh my goodness, they've missed the point. Don't they see how exactly backwards that is? They're saying, we want a man who God will get on his side. And what that church needs, what our church needs is a man who will be on God's side. That's the lesson for Joshua. That's the lesson for every leader. Now, during the next few weeks, you'll hear more about what's happening with our pastor search, but, but our elders are going to be finalizing a search team, and then they're going to begin the recruitment process for a new lead pastor, and that process likely will take several months. And we all need to support that process with a lot of prayer but I think we need to particularly pray for God to bring a pastor to Thurston Christian Church who more than anything wants to honor God's leadership. A pastor whose highest priority is to be on God's side. Well, I hope you've seen that this chapter of the book of Joshua, this very ancient story is highly relevant to our lives today. Because in every age, people tend to take sides on over, over all kinds of issues. And so, so often we find ourselves asking, so whose side are you on, on this issue or that issue? And here's, in this passage, God lays out three distinct steps that help us answer that question for ourselves in our day. And number one, to be on God's side, we honor God's covenant. And as we honor God's covenant, He takes away the reproach of our sin. And number two, we honor God's faithfulness by sharing in communion alongside other believers. We do this to celebrate the fresh start that we've been given through Jesus. We do it to remind ourselves who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And three, we honor God's leadership and we never presume that he's on our side. Instead, we make the conscious effort to discern how to be on God's side and to align our lives with his purposes. And so how do you ensure that you're on God's side? And the answer depends on where you find yourself in your spiritual journey. If you've never taken that first step of faith to get yourself connected with God, then here's how you can make that happen. And it starts when you acknowledge to God that you've engaged in behavior that is harmful to yourself and harmful to others and falls short of what God expects. The Bible calls that sin. And you express sorrow and regret for that behavior. And you acknowledge a desire to change and live differently. And the Bible calls that confession and repentance. And then as an act of faith, you submit to baptism by being immersed in water. And as you go into the water, you spiritually die to your old way of life and God takes away your sins. And as you come out of the water, God has removed your reproach. He fills you with the Holy Spirit and you get to take your first step in a brand new life. Just as the Israelites, by honoring their covenant, were taking a fresh step into the promised land. So how do we respond though If we're like the Israelites, they already were God's people, yet they needed to be renewed and restored. And that's, I think, the case for most of us. We've been walking with God a long time. And yet, sometimes our connection with God grows distant. Sometimes we let our hearts grow cold. So what do we do? We repent again. We ask God to forgive us again. We ask God to remove the reproach of our sin again. You see, as we saw in our recent sermon series through the book of Jonah, God thankfully is the God of the second chance. And in fact, he's the God of the third chance and the fourth chance and the multiple chance. And thankfully, whenever you and I mess up, and we will, we can choose to sincerely repent and ask God yet again to give us another fresh start. Now, I've heard Christians pray for forgiveness for their sins and sometimes they do it frivolously and matter-of-factly. This is nothing to be frivolous about. We mess up, we need to repent with some heartache. And all we have to do is think about who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And it ought to entice us to sincerely say, Oh God, I am so sorry. Help me not to engage in that kind of behavior anymore and to have a fresh start and to press on and to leave that junk behind. And as we do, we can press forward and we can honor God's faithfulness and let Him lead us in the way that He wants to lead us. Whose side are you on? The only right answer is this. I'm on God's side today, every day. Until I draw my last breath, I will honor God and I will strive to be willing to follow Him wherever He leads, regardless of the cost. That's what it means to be on God's side. Are you on God's side today. If not, pray and say, Lord, show me what to do so I can honor you and follow wherever you might lead. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for this great story of faith, and I pray that it encourages us and helps us to maintain a proper perspective on our own lives. And it is an incredible thing that you, the creator of heaven and earth, that you invite us to be on your side. And I pray that we always would choose to do so. And Lord, in making that choice, then help us to be willing to follow wherever you might lead. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.